0: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend
2: today. Hi, Chris Malone from the 98.5 KTK Morning Show. Back with another recap for the show Monday, August 29th. Here's what you may have missed or here's what uh, you didn't quite. Did, Did you say that, Chris? I I can't remember. But anyways, all recapped for you here. And of course, I always welcome your feedback and your comments by emailing me the letter C-M-A-L-O-N-E at odyssey.com. That's A-U-D-A-C-Y.com. Despite an unusually quiet August in the tropics so far this year, which is... Forecaster said it's a little eerie because, you know, we're at the 30th anniversary of Andrew, and um, that was the last year when Andrew hit. It was the last year that we've gone through such a big dry spell of not having a named uh, hurricane in the Atlantic Basin. We're kind of at that point as well. But this was kind of interesting because you tend to think Florida is, because of Andrew and happening 30, uh, 30 years ago, that Florida does have its fair share of tropical and hurricane weather, which is true. But when it comes to the cost that these storms... Um, uh, uh, um, the damage that they cost. Uh, Florida is not number one, not number two, or number three. Number one on the list, according to FEMA data, is Louisiana. And I gotta say, it's probably the worst time for the to to take this because you know Louisiana last year got hammered with four storms, including Ida which caused about $75 billion in damage. They say per resident in the state of Louisiana, it will cost $107 per resident for, to pay for hurricane damages. Uh, number two on the list, Mississippi damages versus the population expected to cost every Mississippian uh, $78 per hurricane or tropical storm that causes damage. Texas, number three, down to $58. And here's where I thought was interesting. So we have uh, Louisiana at 107 um, Mississippi at $78, and then Texas at 58 Florida, even though we have the most tropical cyclone activity and we're number four, that cost actually drops to uh, just shy of 37, $36.5 per Floridian to pay for the damage of hurricanes, which kind of makes you wonder what the heck's going on with all these insurance, these property insurance companies leaving the state of Florida if that's the case. Uh, by the way, number five on the list, North Carolina at $31.93 in losses per person. All right, speaking of your home, chances are you do have a fire extinguisher or a couple, but just how old they are may be a mystery. And much like with anything, when you reach for a fire extinguisher, you kind of need it to work because the only reason you're really reaching for it is because you need its services. And there was a recent survey found that homeowners, on average... Uh, checked out the life, the age of their, fi- their um, uh, fire extinguishers. And on an average, it was around 20 years old. That's pretty long considering the typical lifespan of a fire extinguisher is only 12 years. So we're getting close to almost double in age. So if your home's fire extinguisher, if you don't know its age or you don't even know if you have one, here's what you need to consider. They say at least have one fire extinguisher per floor, so if you have a two-story home, have one on the uh, top floor, one on the bottom floor, and have it rated an A, B, C. And what that means is that it covers uh, uh, the different levels of fire, A, being wood, paper, trash, plastics like that, Uh, B, being flammable liquids like gasoline or oil, cooking oils, and then C, electrical fires. Um, An A, B, C, fire extinguisher will cover all three of those, which is great. Cost a little bit more, but hey, it's well worth the protection, right? Uh, and they do say um, if you are going to um, keep a uh, fire extinguisher in your kitchen, which you should, uh, keep it away from a heat source, which is uh, like a stove or uh, your uh, your oven, mainly because it could uh, it's under pressure. That heat could actually weaken things and cause a problem, so you wouldn't want to do that. And as much as we'd like to store the fire extinguisher um under the sink which is a good place that's where i keep mine anyways it's probably the worst place to keep it according to this because of all the humidity that's underneath your sink that can actually cause the fire extinguisher to rust and you wouldn't want that as well right by the way you can probably get by with just a b uh model for your kitchen because that's the one that covers flammable liquids but still i would go with the abc one and then uh number three on the list is get the largest extinguisher you can safely handle And they come in different sizes, but obviously between 5 and 10 pounds, that's what anybody, uh, an average person can comfortably move around. And if you do need to deploy your fire extinguisher, as much as you want to uh, shoot for the flames, that's not what you want to do. You actually want to uh, employ what's called the pass method, which is to P, pull the pin, A, aim the nozzle towards the base of the fire, not at the flames, S, squeeze the trigger, and the second S, sweep From side to side. Many companies will actually uh, recharge your current extinguisher for right around $50, which is not a bad thing, uh, considering that some of these fire extinguishers can be hundreds of dollars, and then the uh, recharging can last you as long as six years.
0: T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network, from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours.
2: Um, that we do have the launch of the Artemis 1 rocket uh, with the Orion space capsule to uh, orbit the moon. It's a pretty significant day for the country because the last time we went to the moon was 1972. And since then, nothing's really happened. But we are now having this idea of mankind maybe going to Mars. So, you know, we're talking about 30, 40 plus, almost 50 years worth of technology that really has not gone anywhere. So that's why the Artemis 1, which is scheduled to launch today from the Kennedy Space Center, is so important, mainly because it's using newer technology that has not been tested yet. In fact, everything from the orbiter itself to the rocket that will launch it into space, to the um, the lander, are all going to be of new technologies. Let's start off with the rocket. It's 15% more powerful than the Saturn V rocket that launched the Apollo missions to the moon back in the uh, 60s and 70s. It's called the Space Launch Systems Rocket. Um, it will carry the uh, Orion multi-purpose crew vehicle. Um, that is uh, basically where the astronauts would live on their trip to and from the moon. That has never been tested. In fact, the Artemis 1 will have three mannequins strapped aboard the Orion and record the data. As uh, it launches and heads. takes six days to head to the moon, it will circle uh, for roughly about 18 days and then another six days for it to come back into uh, to Earth. It'll take roughly 42 days after launch to splash down off the coast of San Diego. Once that's been complete... Artemis 2 will be ready to go. That is basically the same mission as Artemis 1, but will contain uh, three U.S. astronauts, one Canadian astronaut to launch sometime in 2024. I think they're shooting for May. And uh, they will do basically the same thing. They will circle the moon. Uh, and then they'll come back to uh, to the Earth. Artemis 3, on the other hand, that's when we will employ the Orion spacecraft, which will um, be on top of the SLS rocket. And we'll actually use the Starship human landing system. Remember Elon Musk launching um, the Tetris with the astronaut into space? That was kind of the political stunt a few years ago. Gosh, a decade ago, I think. Um, and now it, uh, it's now developed into the, uh, to the Falcon, which is the SpaceX project. Now he's working on the Starship human landing system. That's the one that's going to deploy from the Orion onto the surface of the moon. We're doing all this as a dress rehearsal for heading to Mars. I don't know if you're aware of this, but there's actually a law in the books that says the U.S. will have a human on the surface of the planet Mars by 2033. Isn't that exciting? We actually are just as exciting as to the generation that had a, uh, a human land on the surface of the moon. To me and my generation, because I've always grown up with someone being on the moon, uh, There's stuff on the moon that we launched. Um, this is very exciting because Mars is so full of science fiction in my book and, and so far away, but really kind of close. And it's the next big step in, in human exploration of our, of our galaxy. All right, stop overthinking your running shoes. It is true. Um, <laughs> there's all sorts of things out there. There's minimalist shoes. There's stability control. There's carbon foot a carbon footplate in your in the shoe. Um, there's midsole softness and shoe drop. What does all this mean? Well, it's a lot of marketing, and and you know you got to hand it because um, there's been uh, one person actually kind of put all this together and say, hey, what's going on with all these shoes? Uh, Because do they actually protect our our feet? Because that's kind of what a running shoe, or all shoes, are are designed for. They're designed, first off, to protect our feet. Secondly, for comfort. But if uh, that comfort sacrifices security, well, it's not really a good shoe and vice versa. So there was 12-foot studies that were reviewed. They looked at over 11,000 participants, and they looked past all the hype. All And they kind of looked about the safety of the foot in the form of running shoes. And here is... the, the, the factual data. It doesn't really matter if the shoe is for minimalist or stability control or soft midsole or a shoe drop. It doesn't matter. As long as the shoe is comfortable, not only to your foot, to your knee, to your back, to your hips... That's the shoes you should go to because there's been talk about the minimalist shoes about how when they originally came out, these are going to be the better shoes because they would help you run the way you're supposed to. A lot of people run by putting their heel first and then their toe. But if you don't have a shoe, how do you run? You run actually on the balls of your feet. And that was what the minimalist shoe was supposed to do. Then there was research that came out and said, well, no, no, that actually is bad because that causes your knee and joint pain and back pain and and hip pain. And come to find out through all of these 12-foot studies and 11,000 participants, there was negligible On both sides of it. That's also the same when we're talking about uh, the stability control. Sometimes you'll pay extra for that carbon foot plate or a, a carbon rod that will control your shoe, so therefore keep making your shoe more stable. There's really no evidence to show that's pro or against or, 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 or truthful or not truthful. Same is true for the uh, the, the prescription shoe. Those are going to be the shoes that are designed for overpronounced running foot or underpronounced. Uh, pronounced. It doesn't really matter. As long as the shoe is comfortable and it fits you well and is sized correctly, I think that's the big thing. Uh, a lot of times people wear the incorrect size of shoes. Uh, I've had somebody tell me at one time that your running shoe should actually be one size larger than your normal shoe. Uh, just to allow some extra space, not only for the length, but for the width of your foot. Uh, foot, But listen, don't take my advice. I'm just the guy here talking to you. Talk to a, pod- a podiatrist if you really sure- want to make sure. But mainly, all the other stuff, is a lot of gimmicks, and I understand it. All right, we're actually heading into uh, Labor Day. It's the unofficial ending of summer, because technically uh, September 22nd is when summer comes to an end. And there's probably been a chance in your lifetime you've heard someone, either through a joke or maybe not through so much of a joke, saying you should never wear white after Labor Day. And there's a lot of theories as to how this uh, particular saying was born. Um, And mainly it comes down to the fact that people would wear white And the hotter months of the year, obviously, to reflect the heat uh, or reflect the sun rays and, and, and radiation so that you would feel a little bit cooler. And that is some truth. But a lot of this never wearing white after Labor Day, the general consensus rolls down to rich America. All right, So follow me on this one. After the Civil War, the country quickly rebounded and grew back together. And a lot of people got rich. They got super rich. And if anyone, if you've ever known, who is financially set for life, that makes you really bored. In fact, I'm, I'm watching the uh, the Apple Plus uh, series with Maida Rudolph. Uh, uh, it's called Billionaire. And, and the whole idea, at least from the first episode I've read or watched, is that she gets divorced, um, and she gets divorced in California, which, of course, is a, uh, a 50-50 state, which means if there's no prenupt, everything's split down the middle. So she inherits uh, half—she uh, becomes the third richest woman in the state— and she is just kind of bored, where she just does fun stuff. But you know, as rich people are, they get kind of monitored by media, and it hurts her charity. And that's as far as I've gotten in the episode. But it does point to a point. I got a little distracted in this in the story, but it comes to the point that America's super rich got bored back in the eighteen sixty seventies, eighties, and nineties, and they, in essence. Implemented rules for fashion because, well, they had nothing better to do. One of the rules happened to be, "Oh, you're not going to wear white after Labor Day because that's a summer color, and Labor Day is the unofficial—it's the official ending of summer." We're going to say that because Labor Day became an official holiday in 1924, and all the way through the 1950s, it was the common practice that you should never wear white after Labor Day. It was a fashion rule made up by the rich that somehow trickled down to the not so rich. Things started to change, though, in the 1950s because people started to, to, uh, to, to buck this trend. When, In particular, one of them was Coco Chanel, who her signature color is white. So she wore white all the time. Um, and uh, that's kind of what things started to change. Not to say Coco Chanel was instrumental in this, but that's when fashion started changing to really just pissing off your parents, irritating your parents beyond relief. And follow me on this one as well. This is my own theory, okay? Uh, Rather than the rich indicating where our fashion trends were, it was the younger generation irritating their parents with fashion choices that made their parents angry. And if you think about this, your grandparents were annoyed when your parents wore ponchos and had long hair and had jeans that were so tight that you literally had to lay down on your bed, grab a pair of pliers, and pull up the zipper in order to close them, (laughs) Ask, I'm sure you ask your parents how I made their grandparents upset. And then you, your parents were annoyed at our generation. We had the dirty hair, the saggy pants. We had the tube tops. Uh, you know, we looked like we just rolled out of bed that annoyed our parents. And if you think about it, if you're a parent today, what's annoying with kids fashion today, the gender neutral clothing line, all the pronouns. These are things that are designed just to annoy you as a parent. And you know what? We did it to our parents. Our parents did it to their parents. And I think the younger generation, they're going to be annoyed by their kids and their fashion choices. (laughs) At least that's my theory anyways. And then finally, we talked about Kit Kat bars um, really coming to a pivotal point um, for vegans. Because, as you know, with a lot of candies, there's milk chocolate. And if you're vegan, well, obviously you can't uh, have milk chocolate because that contains an animal product. So after two years of marketing and research, uh, Nestle says they formulated the world's first vegan Kit Kat bars, known as the Kit Kat V, or for vegan. It's dairy-free chocolate. So in order to replace the creamy taste and texture that customers are familiar with, uh, with the milk chocolate, they substituted the milk ...for a rice product. And they took them about two years to make this plant-based formula. It is now on U.S. shelves. It's not the first candy bar marketed towards the vegan lifestyle... Uh, let's see, uh, Cadbury did something back in 2001. So did uh, Hershey's. They debuted the oak milk chocolate bar. Cadbury did a plant bar. Now Nestle's doing it with the Kit Kat. Probably will trickle into other candy bars. Um, And as all new products are, they generally cost a little bit more, about 20 to 30 cents per bar more compared to their milk chocolate counterparts. But if you've loved the Kit Kat bar and you've gone vegan and you've missed your Kit Kats, now you can have them. How nice is that? So there's the show for today, Monday, August 29th, 2022. I'm Chris Malone. Always welcome your comments and feedbacks. You can email me at chrismalone, or rather, cmalone at odyssey.com. That's the letter C-M-A-L-O-N-E at odyssey.com. That's A-U-D-A-C-Y.com.
0: T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours